Welcome to Morning Soap. At Fusion Church, our desire is that every believer would not just attend church, but also hear from God daily through His Word. As we read the Bible, we begin to see how God responds to things. Doing daily devotions repatterns the way we think, transforms the spirit of our mind, and helps us become more like Jesus. Join us here, Monday through Friday, as various pastors and leaders at Fusion Church share devotion and teaching through that day's soap scripture. Download the current soap reading plan at fusionchurch.cc soap. Amen. Okay, let's read Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we're speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man, that thou dost rememberest him? Or the son of man, that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him <clears throat> for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, as we look at the book of Hebrews, I think it's good to know uh, there is an overarching theme in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's written to Jews who've made a commitment to Christ. But after making that commitment to Christ, their Jewish brethren 
are giving him a really hard time and persecuting him, basically saying, you know, why are you jumping into this, this cult thing called Christianity? And they're getting pressured to go back to their old ways uh, and their own laws uh, and to basically to slip back. Uh, and in that light, Paul literally is shouting to them in Hebrews 2.1, these words, for this reason, and I can hear him almost just pointing a finger to these Jewish believers, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And I can just see Paul staring to these Christians says, I know you're having a hard time. I know you're being persecuted. I know it's not easy. But for heaven's sake, don't drift away from what you've heard. Don't fall away from this amazing message that's going forth around the earth. Don't drift from Jesus. Don't drift from the great salvation he purchased for you on the cross. So I just hear, you see Paul basically saying here, pay close attention. Come on back. Come on back, Hebrew Christians. Come on back. Pay close attention. You got the truth in the beginning. It made a difference in your life. You made a commitment to Christ, but now you're slipping away because the pressure is coming upon you. Don't get sidetracked. Do not get sidetracked. Come back to Christ and realize just what a great salvation he purchased for you. And we're, that's going to be kind of, I think, the overarching theme I want to look at today is this tremendous great salvation that Christ has given to each one of us on the screen and to many others. So basically, uh, I think he's saying, don't drift. And I think to bring that into the modern context of where we live, I would say, don't drift. It's so important that we get into the word of God on a daily basis. And I commend each of you folks to get up at six in the morning today and maybe other days, and you're making it a habit to get into the word of God. And hopefully other people in the church, if they can't do the soap, they're getting up at other parts, but they're getting into the word of God. They're keeping their mind in God's word. They're renewing their mind to think the way Jesus thinks versus what the world thinks. I think Paul would say it's important to read the word of God on a daily basis. I think he'd say it's important to pray on a daily basis, to keep our relationship with the Lord fresh and alive and new. I think Paul would say it's really important on a weekly basis to come together as a congregation and to worship the Lord. And I think Paul would also say, it's, hey, it's really important that you get together in some small groups and connect groups and be able to share your faith with each other and build up each other in the faith and encourage each other in the faith. I think that's what Paul would be saying. If you look at verse three, he says this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We're not just saved. Paul says it's a great salvation. I think that's something we really need to think about and ponder. We just are not saved. We have a great salvation. And I think Paul's going to begin to unpack, indeed, what that salvation is as we go through this chapter. 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? The Lord in his earthly ministry particularly emphasized the power of his salvation at the Last Supper when he said, hey, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Particularly toward the end, Jesus fine-tuned and focused that he came for a reason. We know, uh, basically, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the gospel was very clearly proclaimed by Jesus. And it says here, not only was it proclaimed by Jesus, uh, and he said, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the 12 disciples also heard this gospel along with many others. They heard the message and it, it touched their hearts. And I think Paul is saying, hey, there's a reason to believe what's in the book because Jesus, number one, lived it and he preached it. I think Paul said there's another reason to believe this message is because the early disciples went out and they spread the gospel and they were willing to die for it, by the way. I mean, it must mean something to you if you're willing to die for something. And you look at the martyrdoms of these 12 disciples. Most of the 12 disciples were literally killed because of their belief in Christ. But Paul says, not only that, not only did Jesus preach it, not only did his followers proclaim it boldly to the point of willing to die, he said here, uh, it was also for, God also was bearing witness, okay, to this great gospel, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, it wasn't just speaking it with words. It wasn't just the boldness of the early church and the boldness of Jesus. Paul saying, hey, this is a real message because God bore witness to the message by all kind of different kind of miracles and healings. And I believe with all my heart that God wants to restore that to the church more than where we are at. I believe God does the miracles and the supernatural and healings. But I believe as we get closer and closer and closer to the second coming of Christ, there's going to be a restoration of miracles and signs and wonders to bear witness to the world that Jesus is not just a good prophet. He's not just a good teacher, but that he indeed is uniquely the one and only son of God. So going a little bit further, uh, if you want to look at this great salvation, I think Paul wants to drive home the fact, uh, and he did this uh, before uh, in the first chapter. He kept saying, Jesus is greater than angels. Some of the Jews were getting sidetracked, and because of the pressure, they were losing sight of Jesus, and they kind of put him on the back burner, and they were into this fad of, of angels, uh, and almost maybe to a degree, a worship of angels. And Paul's saying, no, 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 don't get sidetracked. There's angels, but they are not, not in any way on an equal basis as Jesus Christ. Uh, now, he goes on and talks about this great salvation, and he looks, uh, and I'm going to be jumping around here uh, from verses here, there, later, before, to make it more uh, sensible in a sense of to follow a concrete line of thought versus 
here, there, everywhere. I want to try to develop a theme. And to develop a theme, I'm going to be bouncing around a bit. So he's talking about a great salvation. Uh, basically, we taught that in, in one, he's greater than angels. But it says here in verse 9, we do not see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So Jesus was God in heaven and the heavenly realm. But he actually was made, in a sense, went on his earthly journey for 33 years, he was made lower than the angels. In other words, he wasn't in their supernatural rank in heavenly places. He came to earth, uh, and he became one of us. The great salvation starts out that God literally put skin on for you and I. Okay? Uh, look at that on verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. Jesus himself, likewise, also partook of the same. So to be a faithful high priest, uh, to be our substitute, he had to become like us. So he couldn't just be in heavenly realms somewhere out there. He had to become like one of us. He actually had to become a human being. He took on flesh. We have flesh. He had to take on a body. Uh, and he became one of us. Uh, if you look uh, a little bit further, I'll look at 17. Uh, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, in everything, okay? That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. He had to make us in all things. In other words, not only did Jesus have a human body, he had a soul. He had a spirit. He had a mind. He had feelings. In other words, he is exactly like us. He's God, but he's also the God man, a man fully, a human being that we can relate to. He feels what we feel. Uh, not only that, uh, the Bible tells us he feels temptation. I think we can identify that. I don't know if there's anybody on the screen here that does not battle with temptations at various times in our lives. And Paul's going to be very clear in a number of these scriptures. Hey, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He knows the pressures of temptation. He knows how the world can pull you aside. He knows what it's like when Satan tries to put crazy thoughts in your head. He can understand where you're at. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. For it was fitting for him. That's Jesus, okay? For whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, that, that kind of gets people a little wound up. What do you mean, perfect the author? How does Jesus get perfected? He's perfect. So I think you have to realize when he says here, the word perfect, it doesn't mean that, that Jesus had to have something added to him to make him perfect. He has always been perfect in heaven. When he became a man, he was perfect. The word perfect there means more or less complete. In other words, for Jesus to fully identify with us and fully be a mediator for us, he had to go through what we go through. Jesus never had that experience in heavenly places. When he was with God the Father in heaven, he never knew what it was like to be tempted. But when he had an earthly body, and an earthly soul, he began to experience what we experience. And in a sense, he had to be complete. He had to enter into our experience. So although he never experienced temptation in heaven, when he walked the earth, 
he did experience temptation. And that made him exactly like us so that he knows exactly where we are. Uh, look at verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, Jesus was tempted, meaning he suffered. Okay? Uh, he wasn't exempt. You know, we go through suffering. Everybody, every one of you on the screen suffers at times. Okay? Life is a lot of suffering. Sometimes it's a little bit of suffering. Sometimes it's almost overwhelming suffering. But we suffer. The world is fallen. It's flawed. It's crooked. Uh, talk about suffering. Look what just happened in Florida. Okay? Creation groans. And because of the fall, sometimes creation does weird stuff, like hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes. Those people in Florida, they're suffering. We suffer at different times. We can suffer in relationships, suffer with our body, with some kind of health issues. But it says here very clearly uh, that Jesus was acquainted with suffering. So he knows where you're at. If you're suffering, he's suffered and he's aware of that. There's another verse uh, that plugs into this idea of suffering. Uh, and it's found in, let me get it here. Should be in verse okay, two. The pages here, they're stuck. 218, we saw. But there's also, if you look at Hebrews, look at Hebrews 415. Another statement about Jesus and his humanity and suffering and his ability to be tempted. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Get the word sympathize. Jesus sympathizes with your struggles. He sympathizes with your pain. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Here it is. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Tempted in all things. Tempted in all things. Okay? I'm going to give you an illustration of that. I know, guys, we're tempted when you see a beautiful gal on the beach in a bikini. Okay? We feel that. Ladies, I suspect maybe you may have some of that, too, the other way around. Uh, but from what I can see biblically, Jesus was tempted sexually. Somewhere in his journey, there was a temptation sexually if he was tempted in all ways. So irregardless where you're at, no matter what the temptation is, the struggle, Jesus is aware of it and has gone through it, and he went through it successfully. And because of that, because of his victory, look at what it says in 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Paul's saying Jesus gets it. He's been through it. He was tempted, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweat blood. He was tempted to throw in the towel. He was tempted to run. He was tempted in the sense he felt fear. He can get it. He is one of us. And the good news is this. He sympathizes with us. He wants to help us. 
Uh, and here's another verse that I think that's very helpful when we're looking at temptation. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Okay? We all have them, folks. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may bear it. So I don't care how big or troublesome or burdensome your temptation is. It says here, Jesus will never, if you depend on him, if you depend on his Holy Spirit, will never allow a temptation so great that you and he can't beat it. Not on our own self, but with him. And I think where many, many people make a mistake when temptations, you know, they come knocking at the door. I think one of Satan's greatest tricks is to get us to try to deal with those on our own. I have a temptation. So where do I look? Humanly, we look at the problem and we fight the problem and we focus on the problem and we and we say, I'm not going to take another drink. No, I'm not going to smoke again. No, I'm not going to look at pornographic material. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And we focus on the problem. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. And the focus is what can I do and my ability and my energies? And we're going to fall flat on our face. So instead of fighting the temptation, instead of fighting it and going against it and letting it get your attention, turn your eyes away from the problem, away from the temptation, and focus them on Jesus and Jesus alone, knowing that he is bigger than the temptation. And as we trust him, he can get us through. So don't fight the temptation. Trust Jesus to get you through the temptation. So the great salvation is, number one, God loved you and I so much that he sent his son to leave the heavenly realm that was absolutely perfect and an environment that was so special. Who would want to leave it? But God said, no, son, you have to go. And Jesus said, okay, I'll take on flesh and I'll be human and I'll feel what people feel and I will be tempted in what people be tempted and I'll experience suffering the way people will experience suffering. He identified us in all ways, and that's a great salvation. A great salvation uh, is the fact that he ultimately died for our sins on the cross. Romans 3, 23 says, we got a problem, folks, a big problem. It says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody on this screen, everybody outside the screen, Every human being on the earth has a problem. It says we've all sinned, and we're told in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Okay? That's not a good picture. Uh, the wages of sin is death. Death is a two-way street, meaning death means physically we're going to die. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, our bodily eventually is going to give up because it just can't keep going forever. It's going to die so there's a physical death. The wages of sin is physical death, but it's also a spiritual death, meaning a separation from God, which can go on into eternity. And the Bible would call that hell. So we're in a bad way. We need help. And we can't, we can't deal with the issue of sin ourselves, no matter how hard we try. We deserve death. 
But the good news is that Jesus took our place. Somebody had to die for sin. And Jesus said, I'll step in. I'll come into the gap. I will stand in the gap. I'll take the sin. I'll take the beating. I'll take the pain. I'll take it all because I love my creation that much. I will take their place. And he did. And he did. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. It says there, again, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Here it is. Here's the verse. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. To make propitiation. Uh, Basically, to make propitiation means to pay the price for to pay the price for Well, how did he pay the price for? Look at verse 9, 2-9. But we see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. How did he do that? Because of the suffering of death. That's how he made propitiation. He suffered on the cross and on the cross took all the junk and the filth and the sin and all the garbage of our lives, and he took it, and he bore it one time on the cross for you, and he did it for me. And because of that, God the Father affirmed who he was and resurrected him from the dead. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval saying, son, I accept what you did for mankind, and you did it successfully, and if I raise you from the dead, it's me saying, yep, you did it. You paid the price. Sin has been dealt with, and now I can pour out my spirit upon mankind. And again, look at nine. Because of the suffering of death, he crowned them with glory and honor. Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. He's done it all. And it's interesting. uh, He did it all, but the Bible is very clear that he's at the right hand of God this very moment and this day, interceding for us, interceding each of us, for each of us. Father, help them. Give them grace. Give them revelation. Help them to experience the great salvation in all of its aspects. It's amazing. He's up there praying for us on a daily basis so that our salvation could be worked out in detail. He's crowned with glory and honor. And here's the big word, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That by the grace of God, the word grace there means it's a gift. It's a gift. And Paul was so concerned because these Hebrew Christians, instead of walking in grace and celebrating the gift of salvation, they're reverting back to Judaism, and they're going to try to earn again their way. And if I can do a lot of good gifts, if I can do all these good works, then God's going to be pleased. Judaism says you've got to do, you've got to do, you've got to try, you've got to do. You got to try. And Christianity says, done. Jesus said it very clearly. It is finished. Done. I dealt with sin. It's over. You can't earn your salvation. All you can do is receive the grace by faith. You have to receive the grace by faith. And that's what he says right here. To provide, Okay, he said, uh, where are we at here? The end of nine. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he did that. When Jesus died on the cross, yeah, he died for the world. 
but he did that for you individually. And that maybe is something that can grip us. It's almost as if you're looking up at the cross and he would look at us and he said, I did this for you. Yeah, I did it for everybody. I did it for you, though, specifically. I did it for you individually because I love you and I care for you. Paul saying we have a great salvation. Out of that great salvation, our sins can be forgiven. In other words, he's dealt with our past. There's no reason we have to carry any sin that we've done in the past. It is paid for fully on the cross. It is done. It's finished. It's over. And Paul would say, not only has he dealt with the past, he deals with the present. He says, you don't have to be in bondages anymore. You don't have to be in bondage. God is bigger than your bondage. You don't have to be living an empty lifestyle where you're just going through life, going through the motions, but you don't know what abundant life is in experience and reality. The great salvation says not only that, but when we die, there's, there's going to be an amazing hope that we will be saved literally from the presence of sin. Here, we can be set free from sin, but it knocks at the door. In heaven, there will not be temptations, and we will be in the very presence of God where there will be no sin. And I hear Paul saying, this is an amazing, great salvation. And then I can see one other thing Paul would say is a great salvation. If you look at verse 14, he says, since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, also partook of the same. And here it is, that through death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So I love that. Through Jesus' death, he says, Satan literally has been rendered powerless. The Bible says at some points he's like a roaring lion. But I like what somebody says. He has a big sound and an intimidating sound, but he has no teeth. The teeth have been taken. The power has been taken away from Satan. How? Because Jesus died on the cross and has removed that. Satan can come at us and condemn us and try to put us down and, and make us wallow in the, in the pit of guilt. Uh, and yet, if you look at Romans 8, Jesus would say, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Satan may try to keep us in bondage, but Jesus was very clear. He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Uh, Satan tries to come at us and, and try to get a hold of us by the fear of death. If you look at verse uh, 15, he rendered him powerless. It says in verse 14 and 15, he says, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There is a fear of death. I guess it's, it's kind of like instinctively in our humanity. Uh, but the Lord, I believe, has given us some ways to deal with that. It's an innate fear. I mean, every one of us has a level of that fear. Uh, fear for, uh, I think, two major reasons. Number one, I think we're fearful of pain. Uh, we've all known some people uh, that have died very hard deaths. I mean, I would like to just plain fall asleep. My mother died in her sleep. That's the way I'd love to go. Just, just float away. That would be awesome. But as a pastor, I have seen some people go through a very hard and painful period of death. 
So how do we overcome that? Uh, I think here's what, and I believe this is true. We have to believe that no matter what God allows in our life, no matter how hard it may get to the end, we have to remember that his grace is sufficient to get us through. It says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God said this to Paul, but he says it to us as well. He said, my grace is, not maybe, I hope so. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. God's grace is sufficient to get you through death, however it plays out. I know people talking about death, some people are afraid at the end time, you know, if Christ is coming back soon, there's going to be martyrdom. And a lot of people, are, oh my God, I, I don't like the idea of martyrdom. That's, that's, uh, do I want to be tortured to you? God's not going to give you grace to be martyred now because you're not being martyred now. But we have to believe if God ever would call any of us to be martyred, that at that time, he will give you the grace to get through that. And there's amazing testimonies in history of people that were being martyred, and they experienced such grace, such a presence of God. God was there when the time was necessary that he needed to be there. So the fear of death, number one, I don't think we should fear the pain because God's grace will be sufficient. I think the other people have a fear of death because it's the great unknown to them. It's the great unknown to them. But I thought it was really cool. I was talking to a gal the other day uh, from my church in Cape May Courthouse. And she's getting up in probably her late 60s, 70s. And I love what she said. She said, John, I'm looking forward to be with Jesus more and more and more the older I get. It was almost like it hurts. She says, like, you know, I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go to heaven because I long to be in the presence of Jesus. She's seen enough of him. She's tasted enough of him in this life that she says, it's, it's going to be so amazing. I'm ready, Lord. And we have an amazing future as Christians. It says this in Revelation chapter 21. It says this, John saw this in a vision. He said, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he'll dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Now get this. This is what heaven's about, folks. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no tears in heaven. There will be no tears in heaven. Go further. He'll wipe away every tear from the eyes. There shall no longer be any death. That's the last battle. That's the last battle you and I are going to face. There, but once we die, that's it. There no longer will be any death. Get this. No longer will there be any mourning. We mourn for the loss of our loved ones. We mourn for ourselves sometimes because we're going through hard times. And we mourn and we groan. The Lord's clearly saying, guess what? When you're in heaven, that's not going to be. He said in heaven, it says, going further in verse 4, there no longer will be any cry. Okay? We've all been there. We've cried. 
and been overwhelmed by life and overwhelmed by pain. The Lord said, there's not going to be any crying there. He says, uh, nor will there be any pain. So, folks, you only got one opportunity to have pain. It's right here. Because in heaven, it won't be. So I think for a Christian, death is not the great unknown. It is literally a doorway into a realm that is mind-blowing. Uh, and you can take your best day here on earth, the time when you felt closest to the Lord. Maybe it's been in a worship service. Maybe he's intersected your life through your private devotion. Take your best day. And when you've experienced a little bit of the Lord, that's just the tiniest taste of what heaven's going to be. It's going to be blowing our minds out uh, to be in the immediate presence of God forever, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So basically, Paul ends up, and he says in Hebrews 2, let me find it here again, I jumped away from it. In Hebrews chapter 2, uh, 10, uh, again, as you look toward the end, it says, Jesus will bring many sons to glory. And that's the end game. That's why Jesus came to earth. That's why he took on flesh. That's why he died to bring many sons, many daughters to glory so that you're literally going to be with them. There will come a day that you're going to see God face to face. And you're going to be changed into his image. And it will be mind-blowing. We will experience perpetually a supernatural love, a supernatural peace, and a supernatural joy. So what I hear Paul saying is this, like, hey, folks, pay attention. Don't get distracted by the world. Don't let temptations get you off course. Don't slip back to trying to earn your way. Experience the grace of God. Don't let anything interfere. In 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul says this, But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Ephesians 5.6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. We're told at the end of the times, which we can well be entering, there's going to be a lot of deception going on. There's going to be a lot of false doctrine that's going to filter into the church and water down the message of the gospel. And I hear Paul saying, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by the cults, by the Jehovah Witnesses, by Mormons, by other things. Do not be deceived. And how do we not get deceived? We've got to be in the truth. And I like the, uh, somebody that said to a tower once, how do you know when you have a counterfeit bill and how do you know when it's real? And I like what the tower said. They've trained us to look at the real money over and over and over. And we study the real money. And if we study it long enough, when there's something counterfeit, it instantly says, this doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. Satan will come in as the great counterfeiter. But I hear Paul saying, and I would encourage each of us, don't be deceived. Know the truth, for the truth will set you free. Here's the truth right here, folks. And the more we get into this Bible, the more we go through the soap studies, the more we're going to know the truth. And the more we know the truth, we're not going to fall for the lies of the devil. And we're not going to fall for all his gimmicks and all the ways he gets us off course. But we're going to be anchored in the Lord and we'll be selling his great salvation 
because we know what it is because we've taken time to study it, meditate upon it, and apply it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing, as Paul says, this great salvation, Lord, that you've accomplished by becoming a man, by feeling what we feel, by being tempted as we're tempted, by tasting death in our place, by being resurrected from the dead and at the right hand of the Father. We thank you, Lord, for this amazing salvation, Lord. Not only in this life, but the amazing salvation as we die that we'll be in heaven, we'll be in your presence forever, free of pain, sorrow, tears, heartache. Thank you for this amazing salvation, Lord. We pray, uh, Holy Spirit, make it more and more and more real to us, not just in our brains, but in our hearts. Lord, we pray you'd put a fire in us to want to share that great salvation with our loved ones, with the people we work with, with our neighbors. Uh, with others that you give us an opportunity to do that with. So, Father, we just thank you uh, for your word that leads us and guides us and instructs us. And, Father, we just pray these things, and I pray it for myself and for my brothers and sisters. In your name, amen. Amen. Have a great day, folks. God bless you. Experience the great salvation today. Amen.